0: Will you please pray with me? Now, Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Good morning. morning. There we go. You're awake now. Good. So a question for you. Question for you. Who did you reveal the love of God to this week? Who did you reveal the love of God to this week? This was a challenge that I laid out for each one of us at the end of last week's sermon. To go fishing for people and to invite someone into a deeper relationship with Jesus. Now don't worry, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But it is a good reminder to all of us of what we're about and why we're here. And it connects us to the series that we're about to end and the one we're about to begin. You see, this week we're wrapping up our His Story sermon series, the one that we began way back in August of last year, looking at the story of God as revealed through the Old and New Testaments. We've been going through it chronologically, and it's his plan, isn't it, to draw all people back into relationship with him since the fall of mankind. Well, next week, we're going to begin a new series to take us through this summer. It's going to be called Outward Bound, and we'll be going through the book of the Acts of the Apostles, which is Luke's sequel to his gospel, and to be honest, it could just be called His Story Part Two. It's really a continuation. It's the story of how God, in the power of the Holy Spirit, the first disciples to take the good news of Jesus to the known world, to go fishing for people and to draw them back into a relationship with him. It's really part two, right? Today, though, we're going to wrap up his story, part one. And we're heading back to the Gospel of John. We've been in here a bit in and out of the His Story sermon series. And we're going to come to what is his final discourse. These are Jesus' final words before he's arrested and then crucified. This has been given on Monday, Thursday, at that Last Supper. And in typical Johannine style, that's the fancy way theologians say, like John. I just put that in so you knew I went to seminary, okay? don't want to waste all that money that people gave to me to spend on seminary. I want to begin by saying that I could give a thousand sermons on this one passage of 13 verses. I could give a thousand different sermons. It is packed full of incredible statements and teaching. Or if you want, I could just give an incredibly long sermon for the next three hours. <laughs> I mean, it's up to you. Okay, well, for your sakes, I'm going to restrain myself, and I'll try to be brief. Which reminds me of a time when Charles Spurgeon, that great Baptist preacher, well, he asked one of his ministerial students to give an impromptu sermon on Zacchaeus, the result of which deserves an entry into the Guinness World Book of Records for the shortest sermon ever preached. The student got up into the pulpit and proclaimed the entire sermon in just three sentences. First, Zacchaeus was a man of small stature, as am I. Second, Zacchaeus was very much up a tree, so am I. Third, Zacchaeus made haste and came down, so will I. And with that, (laughs) the student sat down to shout some more, more from his fellow students. No, said Spurgeon. He couldn't improve upon that if he tried. (laughs) Well, for those of you wanting to get out of here in time to beat the lunch crowd... My sermon will not be that short, I'm afraid, but it is brief in its scope or narrow in its scope. You see, I simply want to focus on one verse, one verse, and that is the first verse, verse 15. It is, after all, then repeated two other times in this passage in a different form um, or different wording. Verse 21 and then verses 23 and 24. And Jesus gives a little bit more explanation each time. You'll notice that. And whenever we have a repetition in scripture, we know that what's happening, or in this case, what's being said, is really important. We need to take notice. So let's turn to our gospel reading from John. You can follow along in the scripture sheet, or you're welcome to use the screens... ...or pull out your Bible app, or your Bible if you have one. And in verse 15 we read this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Let's read that together. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. First of all, we see that according to Jesus, to love him is to obey him. To love him is to obey him. Then, verse 21: Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Second of all, we see that not only does loving Jesus lead to obeying Jesus, but that loving him leads to the father loving us and Jesus loving us and making himself known to us. And then finally, verses 23 and 24. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. Third, we see that not only does loving Jesus lead to obeying him, but that loving him leads to God himself coming to reside within us, to dwell or live within us. But we also see that if we don't follow Jesus' commands, that we do not love him. There's no third option, if you will, okay? One where we pick and choose what commands we want to follow and what commands we don't. And so having heard this statement in effect three times, I want to ask us the really obvious question, or at least to me, it was the obvious question to ask. And it's this. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? You know, a good test of this is to ask yourself, would anyone know I love Jesus within an hour of meeting me? Would they know that I love Jesus within an hour of meeting me? Would it become apparent to them? Or you could say, would anyone know this from observing my behavior for a day? Would they know that I love Jesus because they watched me and how I act for a day? Yes, there is something noticeably different about you and your lifestyle. When you come to know and love Jesus, it should become clear to non-believers that, in fact, you are not like them. You see, while you cannot earn your salvation from God, that has been and always will be given by grace alone. Once you love him, your lifestyle changes, the way you live your life, your priorities in life. They change how you act is different. The best analogy I can think of is that of a parent and a child. No good parent wants their child to obey them simply out of duty or fear. Our hope is that our children will ultimately obey us Because they love us, right? And then, you know, we want them to honor and respect us because they love us. And that they experience the sacrificial love that we show to them, whether it's the changing diapers, the late nights rocking them to sleep when they're sick, preparing meals for them, reading to them, playing with them, helping them with their homework, giving them rides to various activities and playdates, putting up with their favorite music along the way... (laughs) And that they choose to obey us when we ask them to do something that they might not otherwise want to do, trusting that we have their best interest at heart. And the same could be said of God, that we love him because he first loved us. That's First John verse, uh, chapter 4. That because of his willingness to humble himself and to enter the world, our world, becoming like us, living among us, before hanging on a tree for us and breaking the curse that came with Adam and Eve and defeating sin and death once and for all, so that if we repent and believe in him, we'll be saved. And one day we too will rise again and live in the new heaven and the new earth because of what he's done for us. That because of this, we'll love him and we'll obey him and we'll keep his commands. You know, I remember a time back in college, I went to a, an English university called Warwick University. And I remember there was in that place that I first came to truly love Jesus And a year or so after coming to know Jesus, I was walking to the grocery store to get my weekly groceries with a Christian friend called Caroline, who had known me this whole time at college. And as we were walking together, Caroline said to me, you know, you've changed this past year. I said, really, what do you mean? She said, well, when I first met you, you lied a lot. That's pretty blunt, right? But as I thought about it, she was right. I had been someone who was a liar. Loving Jesus had led me and still leads me to want to be honest and to have integrity. It has changed my lifestyle. Which leads me nicely into our next question. One that then you might ask of me, okay? So I would ask of you, do you love Jesus? But then you might ask, well, yeah, but which commands of His do I keep? Which commands in Scripture do I keep? Does this include the commands in the Old Testament, all 613 of those? What about the regulations in there about things like not eating shellfish? Okay, some of you are probably real sinners if that's the case, okay? Probably in the last month or so you've eaten some good shellfish, right? It's a tough one for those of us who live on the East Coast. Or is it just the commands that Jesus gives in the four Gospels, which could be 38, some people say 50 maybe, or 125, depending on which ones you think apply to people today that weren't just given specifically to the 12 back then? Or is it the commands that come later in the New Testament as outlined by the apostles? There's another thousand or so if you go ahead and count those. Well, it's really a meaningless question in one sense, because Jesus sums up all of the commands of Scripture in two sentences when asked which is the greatest commandment. Hopefully you've realized that we say it each week, don't we? Matthew 22. Say it with me if you can. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. We say it each week, don't we? Love of God and love of people encompasses the whole law. I love those T-shirts I've seen around some churches have that just simply say on them, love God, love people, right? It's real simple, right? Well, it sounds simple. It's not easy. (laughs) Trust me. And while we don't need to fulfill all of the ceremonial laws within the Old Testament, we don't need to do that. Jesus has fulfilled those through his life, his death and resurrection. Okay. And while we don't need to fulfill all of the civil laws either, because those were created for God's people being a nation, the nation of Israel not for God's people being the church as we are now. We're not a nation any longer, okay? There's still clearly a call, though, by Jesus in the Gospels to love God and love people through keeping his moral law keeping his moral law. Just go and read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5-7 through 7 after this service if you don't believe me, okay? As Jesus says in Matthew 5-18, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. You see, while some people, I think, believe that Jesus lowers the bar when it comes to obedience of the law, I don't think that's true. Over and over again, I think he raises the bar when it comes to that, whether it's with our money or our sexual ethics or whether it's to do with marriage or anger and whether it's just love in general. He raises the bar. Yes, to love God is to obey God. And it is costly and difficult. There's no way around it. And obedience isn't just for a short period of time, it's for the rest of our lives. It's what um, one of my favorite pastors, Eugene Peterson, calls a long obedience in the same direction. It's a long obedience in the same direction. Now, obedience in our culture, however, is seen as a rather dull word, I think, right? It pushes back against the climate of individualism, freedom, consumerism, pluralism, and endless choices that we are trying to create. And so even within the church, we try and twist the words of jesus to suit our own desires writing about this peterson says this well-meaning people tell us that the christian gospel will put us in charge of life will bring us happiness and bounty so we go out and we buy a bible and we adapt edit sift summarize we then use whatever seems useful and apply it in our circumstances however we see fit We take charge of the Christian gospel, using it as a toolbox to repair our lives or as a a guidebook for getting what we want or as an inspirational handout to enliven a dull day. But we aren't smart enough to do that, nor can we be trusted to do that. Listen to what he says next, though. Listen to how it relates to what we've been hearing in our His Story sermon series and what we're about to hear in our Outward Bound series. He says this, the Holy Spirit is writing us into the revelation the story of salvation we find ourselves in the story as followers of jesus jesus calls us to follow him obey him or we do not find ourselves in the story this is an immense world of god's salvation that we are entering we don't know enough to use or apply anything our task is to obey believingly trustingly obey simply obey in a long obedience. You know, to quote my dear friend from Pakistan, Bishop Mushtaq, when he preached here last time, it's not very sexy, is it? <laughs> it's not very sexy. It doesn't sound like very appealing, to at least to our people and our culture, That idea of an obedience in the long direction. Uh, long obedience in, I get this right, a long obedience in the same direction. And that leads us to my third question today. Are you willing to lay down your life for Jesus? Are you willing to lay down your life for Jesus? Do you love him? Are you seeking to obey him? And are you willing to lay down your life for him? And what do I mean? Well, think of the Olympics for a moment. You know, how many of us get really excited about watching the marathon on the Olympics, right? You probably, you like, you gear up for that, you're like, I gotta watch the marathon today at the Olympics. I can't wait for two hours and five minutes of that kind of running, where they're just running along the road, and occasionally they look behind, and they just keep running, right? It's not generally something we think of, well, that sounds really exciting, I'll, I'll watch the marathon. No, typically what we want to line up and watch are the track events, right? Where it might be the 100-meter sprint or the 4x100 relay. Okay, that's the stuff that really gets the millions of viewers. Sprints are way more exciting and millions more people tune in to watch them than the marathon. But the Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. It is a long obedience in the same direction, constantly making the same choices over and over again. And ask any alcoholic or drug addict, they know what I mean and what that's like. It's choosing to be faithful to my spouse when temptation comes my way once again. It's choosing to bite my tongue when I'm tempted to gossip or be spiteful. It's choosing to be thankful when all I feel is bitter. It's choosing to be humble when pride is rearing its ugly head. It's choosing to forgive others when they hurt me again and again. It's choosing to fish for people and to make disciples when I'm tired or apathetic. It's choosing to worship each and every week with my brothers and sisters in Christ. It's choosing to love my enemies. It's choosing to not hold anger in my heart towards someone. It's choosing to pray and find time alone with the Lord each day. It's choosing to fast. It's choosing to be generous with my money and restrained with my spending. It's choosing to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, as Jesus puts it in the Sermon on the Mount. But Jonathan, you might say, I can't do that, right? And you can't. You're right. It's the right thing to say. You cannot do it. You see, at this stage, therefore, we might all be tempted to give up. Say, well, that Christian journey is not for me. We might say, I can't do it instead, but Jesus will forgive me anyway. So I'll just stop feeling guilty. I'll enjoy myself and I'll say sorry every so often. It's what theologians call the doctrine of cheap grace. And it was a term coined by Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. And in that book, he defined it as the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ. It's the idea that we can be saved without then choosing to obey God. But salvation by grace through faith alone is so much more than simply mouthing the words, Jesus is Lord. We're not saved by a profession of faith. We're not saved by praying the sinner's prayer. We're not saved by signing a card or walking an aisle. We are saved by a living and active faith in Jesus Christ. A faith that manifests itself in repentance, obedience, and love of God, and love of our neighbor. So you see, salvation is not a transaction, as many of us think. It's transformation. It's not a transaction. It's transformation. Paul says it best when he says, we are new creations in Christ. And here's the really good news. The reason that we're new creations is that when we enter into a living and active faith, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. This is the helper that Jesus is speaking about in verses 16 and 26, the spirit of truth in verse 17, or the Holy Spirit in verse 26. He's the one who enables us to love God and to obey him. To continue in that long direction, a long obedience in the same direction. And apart from Him, it's impossible. But with Him, it starts to become second nature. And yet, how often do we ask God to fill us with His Spirit? In fact, I'm certain that there are some people here today who've never done it. They've never asked God to fill them with His Holy Spirit. And you're like a beautiful sports car out there in the parking lot that's got no gasoline in it, right? Useless, okay? Or you're like an expensive computer that's never been plugged in, can't be turned on. Or the latest iPhone that's never been charged. You are powerless, powerless. And as you remain powerless, your love for God perhaps dwindles and you exhaust yourself trying to obey Him in your own strength. But imagine what God could do in you and through you if you would ask the Holy Spirit to fill you. See, this summer, where um, we'll see that when the Holy Spirit works in us and through us, incredible things happen. People are healed, captors are, healed uh, captors are freed, sinners are saved, and disciples are made. Yes, we see not just salvation, but transformation. So, do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? And are you obeying his commands in the power of the Spirit, laying down your very life, for him? And if not, would you say that you're ready to love him today? Are you ready? And are you ready to ask him to fill you with his spirit of truth? That's that third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, the one who can help you to love and obey him. This week I want to end by asking God to fill us with his spirit, that we might love him and obey his commands. And that we might be ready for that long obedience in the same direction, whether you have another 80 years or you've got another eight months, that you will continue in that long obedience in the same direction. And that his spirit might not just bring salvation here at Holy Cross, but transformation. And that as we leave this place today, it might be self-evident to people that we love him and that others might be drawn to the light of Christ within us. So would you please stand with me? And just like you do, uh, receiving the Spirit, sorry, is like receiving a gift from God. It's just like that. And how do we normally receive a gift? Thank you, Frank. Put our hands out, all right? So I take any opportunity to get you guys to raise your hands, trust me. (laughs) I'll do it in sneaky ways, however I can do it. And eventually, who knows? We might be doing this in worship. Who knows? So put your hands out like this to receive a gift because God freely gives. And He promises to do that when we ask for His Spirit, okay? So let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Come move in this place. Come like that rushing wind of that first Pentecost when you came and moved among your disciples and you transformed them, Lord God. Would you transform us right now, each and every person in this room? Would we receive that gift of the spirit? And would we grow in our love for you and our obedience of you, Lord God, laying down our lives? laying down our lives for your kingdom's sake, that others might come to know and to love you as well, and that we would live with your joy and your peace in our lives. Come, Holy Spirit, empower us, embolden us, and change us. Make us more like you, more ready to go out and to fish for people that they might know and love you also. We pray this in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.